0: We are kicking off a brand new series here at Village Bible Church. We're calling it, uh, talking about the target of Village Discipleship. This is a short series. It'll be for the next three weeks. Then we'll be moving into our, a series after that called Shattered as we walk through the entire book of 1 Samuel. But for these next three weeks, we're going to be parking on and talking to talk about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, as well as how we can make disciples. Because God didn't call us to create, help him create the world. He He didn't call us to sustain the earth on its axis. He didn't call us to figure out all the stars and every other thing that's going on in the world. He called us to one thing, and that was to help him make disciples of the world. Now, he could have done that himself. For whatever reason, he chooses to use us. To, to go make his name known across the world. But how do we do that? I mean, yes, we know the, the scripture that Jesus has shared. If you're familiar with the scripture, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded to you. And behold, I'll be with you to the very end of the age. And that's in Matthew 28. But what does it mean to be a disciple? How do we discover disciples? And if we're to figure this out, we have to, to look at Jesus himself to discern and understand how we are to do it. So today, we're going to talk about that, because really, I think we have a, a strange notion of what it means to make disciples. Um, we can think if they, if they just espouse a certain creed, or if they go to a certain church, if they do a certain thing, we think they're disciples, but it's much more than that. I'm reminded of the great Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, He was a British pastor during the 19th century. we've, We've talked about him several times. He's an amazing, amazing man of God. Uh, by the age of 19, he was already pastoring a several thousand member church. By the time that his life ended, his sermons were being published around the world, actually started happening when he was quite young, and he'd started over some 2,000 ministries. I mean, this was one very gifted preacher, started a, pastor in a pastor's college, orphanages, hospitals, you name it, he was involved in that ministry. And Spurgeon was telling a story. I mean, and there's some great stories about Spurgeon. If you ever get a chance to read anything about him, I would recommend so. There's a great story about him walking on the street one night when this man who is completely drunk comes up to him and he's like, Pastor Spurgeon, he recognized him. He's like, I'm one of your converts. And he responds, well, you must be mine because you're certainly not the Lord's. You get the picture? He's saying that you're following a man but you're not following God. Your life does not reflect the truth of what you're espousing. You're saying that you're following me and I can't change people's hearts, but God can and apparently he hasn't in yours. Now, I don't want us to throw the baby out with the bathwater as the expression goes uh, and, and not to say that we're not gonna struggle with sin. This could have been a man had a weak moment. We don't know, but it's, it's conveying a larger truth. Does our life reflect the truth of who God is? Because see, that's what a disciple really is is someone who is passionately pursuing God. And today we're going to look at this passage and look at Jesus and see how He made disciples and how He changed lives for the glory of His name and how He invites us to participate with Him in making His name known to the nations. let's pause for a moment, ask for God to bless and speak to us in our message time. Our Father and our God, you are the great King. You are the great lover of our souls. We come before you right now asking you to speak to us and help us, Lord. Show us how we are to help discover disciples. May we follow your example. Lord, we're fearful. We're frail. We have so many different faults that keep us from uh, reaching out and speaking about the truth of your name. Lord, give us a holy boldness And a holy curiosity to seek your word, to search it, to understand it, and then to apply it to our lives. And may the truth of your word be etched on the depths of our souls that we might go forth changed, empowered, and encouraged by the power of your spirit to proclaim your name to a lost and dying world. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Matthew chapter 11. And before we get to really delving into this passage and talking about how Jesus discovered disciples, I want to give you some points on what discovering disciples is not. Now, I don't have this in the notes. I just want you to listen in. This is what discipleship is not. Okay? It's what we're starting with the negative. Because I think we have a lot of ideas on what discipleship is. But uh, discipleship is not sheep-stealing. Now, you may not have heard that term, but in churches, we talk about people being sheep, we having a great shepherd, and it's not taking people from other churches to attend yours. That is not discipling, saying, I made a disciple. No, you stole someone from another church. That is not discipling. That is not what God is talking about. Secondly, it's not getting someone to sign the church roll. That is not a discipleship, not making a disciple either. We can convince people that they need different things, and we can get them to be on church roles. That does not make a person a disciple of Jesus Christ. There are many people whose names are on church roles who are totally unredeemed and not saved. And I've heard of people being that. I was, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, I was talking to a young man who was on the church council of his church, and he realized that he didn't even know who Jesus was. He was not saved. He did not have a relationship with Almighty God. And it took him going to visit another pastor in the area. And the pastor sitting down with him and said, do you you know Jesus? He said, I thought I could get to heaven by having a good life and being a part of this church, not inviting and trusting him as Savior of my life. So it's not putting your name or getting someone to sign a church role. That is not making a disciple. Thirdly, it's not creating excitement or emotion in someone getting them to have an experience. Let me say that again. It's not creating excitement or emotion in getting them to have an experience. Now, I've been involved with different churches, several churches over the years, and when I first came to know Jesus, I remember being in a church. I was brand new to the faith, and I remember that there was, the music was rocking. There was a service, and there were people telling me that I had to come forward, and I had to receive the Holy Spirit of God. And I want to know what that meant, and I wanted that. And, but I see people dancing around that look like lunatics. I mean, they're waving their arms and shouting weird stuff, and I'm sitting there going, I don't know how this brings glory to God. I'm not saying that God can't speak to people. I'm not saying that. I'm not showing that God can, can, can show his presence and transform an individual. But what I'm saying is, is don't equate that experience or that emotion with salvation. Because I've seen people have great emotional experiences and then totally go off the next day and they're just continuing on in every sin imaginable. That is not salvation. Having an ecstatic experience is not what making and discovering a disciple is. There might be experiences involved as God shows himself to us, but don't equate that with having and being saved. Because you can be in churches and see people doing it and you're like, oh, the Spirit's here. And I'm like, Something's here. Now again, I'm not saying you can't, people can't dance and worship. I'm not saying that there can't be times where God shows himself in amazing ways that blows us away by his manifest presence. I'm saying we have to be discerning in how we go about these things. So we have to be very careful. Now fourthly, it's also not making someone more moral. Discovering a disciple is not getting someone to sin less. Now sometimes we think that. That if we can get someone who, to love his wife, that he's a disciple now. No. Or stop looking at pornography, or stop stealing, or, or stop lying, or stop doing whatever. Fill in the blank. We think if we can get them to be more moral, then that's making a disciple. That is not it. That's putting lipstick on a pig. I don't know how. That's a pretty graphic picture. What I'm saying is, is you're making them moral, but the heart's not right. The heart has to be transformed. It's not an outward conformity, but an inward transformation. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Discovering disciples is seeing that inner transformation occur in someone's life. Because I can help you be more moral. I can help a person dress up. I can help a person say please and thank you. I can help a person do all of these things, but the heart's not there? Then they're not, they're not a disciple of Jesus. See, it's an inside-out transformation. So what then is a disciple? And how do we discover them? Well, let's begin with the definition. I mean, first of all, I'm going to work at the word. I don't have the definition up there yet, but the word disciple is mathetes, and it simply means learner or follower. That's a simple understanding of what it is. But this is what I want to give a definition of what it is. This is one we have come up with here at uh, VBC. A disciple is one who diligently learns, passionately loves, and purposefully lives according to the pattern of their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is not exhaustive definition. This is a simple, concise definition that we're using to help discern and discover and simplify what it means to follow of Jesus. We can add many elements to this, but this is what we have settled on. We're going to be breaking this down diligently. Learns that learner, but not just learning about who Jesus is, but passionately loves. God, and wants to do what God wants, and then purposefully lives according to the pattern of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, meaning that they've been regenerated, and they're following what they have learned within the Word of God. So that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now that we have that definition, I want to spend some time in our text and walking through our passage. So let's begin in verse 25. So Matthew eleven twenty-five. 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, he's praying, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Now, let's get some context here. Why is he thankful? Well, if you look at the verses directly preceding that in verse 20 through 24, Jesus is denouncing the cities where most of his mighty works have been done because they didn't repent. See, they'd seen great miracles, they were, hey, we love the miracles, Jesus. We love the healing. We love that. But yet they weren't willing to do what God wanted him to do. And Jesus is declaring judgment on them. He's saying that that should bring you to repentance, not continuing a life away from God. He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, a signs in the Jewish culture of deep sorrow and remorse over their sin. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You think you're so great. You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained in this, until this day. I mean, they would have repented. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And then it goes into verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Meaning, you can't figure this out just through philosophy. It's not through all the smart people, all of the different scholars, that they're really going to truly understand who God is and what it means to be a follower of him. And he says, I thank you, Father, that you didn't reveal yourself in that regard to all those people that seemingly would deserve it. But instead, you reveal yourself to little children. Yes, Father, for such was our gracious will. Sometimes I do believe that children are the best theologians. And they have a greater understanding of faith than many of us who are adults. It's a simple faith and trust in Christ that we lose sometimes as we age. But they can, he continues on. He says, Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will in verse 26. All things verse 27 have been handed to me handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him now if we're going to discover disciples we have to start back in the mind of god that's what jesus is doing he's putting us in the mind of god and he's showing us then the actions of man on how we are to respond and in starting in showing how he discovers disciples he first begins with this it involves a divine revelation a divine revelation. We cannot follow God if we don't know who God is. We don't know who Jesus is if it weren't for the Bible. We would have isolated pictures about him through history Tacitus, Suetonius, uh, Eusebius. These are historians in the ancient world. Josephus. We would know a little bit about him, but without the Bible, we have nothing. And Jesus is saying here that it begins with a divine revelation, it's in the mind of God. And it involves, first of all, a sovereign. I want to talk about the sovereign son. He said, you have entrusted to me. Verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my father, and no one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son. And to anyone whom the son chooses to reveal him. Chooses to reveal him. See, it's this son that he's talking about, this divinely appointed son that God would bring you to bring about our salvation. And it's through him that we can see God as father and understand who God is. And in John 14, 6 through 7, I want you to, if you can turn that passage with me, it would be, it would be very good on page 901 in your pew Bible. If you have a large print pew Bible, it's 1146. But Jesus says this, I am the way. He is the only way to God, not a way, the way. It's a definite article that is there. I am the way. I have seen other religions, such as the Baha'i, or different people have come uh, from backgrounds where there are many different gods, and they have no problem seeing Jesus within the pantheon of gods. But the scripture shows definitely that there is one way, that there is one God, not many manifestations of the one God, but that there is only one God. He says, I am the way. And the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, God the Son. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. See, within the triune God, the three separate persons, but one God and it's a mystery that we cannot fathom, not three gods, but one God in three persons, there is such an exclusive love relationship that included a direct and immediate knowledge of each other. The God Father and God the Son and God the Spirit know each other so well. And by showing that He is the way and the truth, God is showing that He is the, or Jesus is showing, God the Son, is showing that He is the pathway to God and He is also the truth of who God is. And the very life, personified and offered to men because I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a sovereign son that God has appointed to bring about the redemption of mankind. And if we need to understand that, that God chooses some and not others. That's a hard truth. They're talking about a sovereign selection. Now, this is the doctrine known as predestination. This is a very difficult doctrine. This is one that we are not going to come to a consensus on or to be able to resolve on a Sunday morning in Aurora, Illinois, at Village Bible Church, considering that there have been men and uh, scholars, uh, uh, pastors, theologians that have debated this for centuries, that God chooses some and in and, and reasons that we do not understand, not based on any merit whatsoever of our own. Now, some people hate that truth, and they, 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 they just get angry against it that God would choose some. And we don't know why he does that, but we know that he does, and we take solace in that. It's in the mind of God, and we as believers in Christ are not privy to the counsel of God to know why he chooses some. What we do know is that he tells us to choose as well, and that we are morally responsible creatures in our everyday actions. So from God's perspective, we're chosen since the foundation of the world. And from our perspective, we have to choose. But we see here, Jesus is saying, it's only to those who... Whom I reveal myself to. I'm the one who risks to reveal and show in all my glory who I am. Think about uh, this is played out in Saul's life. Before he became Paul, when he's on the road to Damascus, he hates Jesus. He can't stand him. He's learned about him, but he doesn't know that he is the Lord of all until Jesus reveals himself as the Lord of glory. And he chooses Saul, and Saul's life is transformed, and he becomes Paul. It's not based on any work or merit of our own. God does that. It's in the mind of God. And it's a truth that we espouse. We may not understand, but we trust in God because he is benevolent, he is good, he is loving, and he is wise. And his ways are not our ways, nor his thoughts are our thoughts, and we, we trust in that. So there is understanding of our sovereign selection that he, God has chosen. And a good way to illustrate this, by the way, we've talked about this before, but it's, it's like looking at a doorway of a building, and it says, Whosoever will may come. And if you're that whosoever will, you walk through the door and then after you walk through the door, you turn and see a sign over your head that says, chosen since the foundation of the world. It's the only way that we can illustrate it and understand it really truly. Because if God's mind is so much greater and what he has revealed in his word are truths that are beyond our comprehension. But we rest in that understanding that it begins with the divine revelation and it is the sovereign son and a sovereign selection. Now, now that we've given this little overview in the mind of God, I want to get more specific, examining what Jesus did. So we're moving from those truths uh, in 25 and 27 into verse 28. So look at verse 28 with me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy easy. And my burden is light. Now Jesus is showing us something here. The depth to which he cares for us. He came to connect with us. Notice the extent that God went to in order to connect with us. He came to earth. Jesus is talking to an audience in time. And he's saying, come to me. I understand you. You are tired. You're hurting. See, I've came to identify with you. I've come to, to have a, a huge connection with you. See, we have to understand that just as Jesus connected with people, so we must connect with people as well. If we're to discover disciples, it involves a necessary connection. He understood. He'd walked in our place. It says that he was tempted in every way such as we are, yet still without sin. He went through it. He experienced it. Now some people would say, "Well, Jesus doesn't really understand because he never sinned. How can he understand me?" Just because he, he was tempted doesn't mean he doesn't understand the power of temptation. Matter of fact, I would say that he understands temptation better than we do. C.S. Lewis talks about that in one of his books. He said it's, he goes, imagine he's talking about a tide that is coming. He said, it's not the person who gives in after the initial water hits them that understands how powerful it is. It's the person that stands their ground and feels it in all of its fury, understands the power of it, and yet never gives in. The person who gives in after a moment doesn't understand the depth of its power rushing at them, but it's the person that can endure and persevere and last through it. See, that's what Jesus did. He could pass, and he could last past it. He went through it. He was tempted in every way such as we are. Tempted to lust, tempted to gossip, tempted to steal, tempted to, to hurt, to hate, to harbor, to be bitter. He was tempted just like you and I, and yet he still was that without sin. See, He shows a necessary connection to you, that He wants that love relationship with you. And that's what He wants us to do with others. That requires, by the way, a great humility. To have that connection requires humility. Think about that. That the great, big, omnipotent, omniscient, imminent, wonderful, awesome, everlasting, eternal, infinite God, who is completely loving, and completely wrath, completely good, and completely merciful, there is no contradiction within the, the person of God, would make himself susceptible and become, assume the flesh of a baby boy. Now, I can't think of anything much more helpless than a baby. Can't defend themselves. They can't exercise all of the, the powers that we can. I mean, we see as children, we are, the children, especially my kids, are eager to grow up and assert their authority and not be dependent upon others. You ever had that, parents? How many of you have teenagers? You know exactly what I'm talking about. Or even toddlers. There's this thing within us we want to assert and grow and, and not be dependent upon. And yet, God Himself made Himself so small and seemingly insignificant that he entered into a culture, that he humbled himself. Philippians 2, chapter 2, talks about this. Philippians 2, cha- uh, chapter 2, verse 5 through 8, page 980. And this is Paul, again, writing to the church at Philippi, and he is encouraging them to have, adopt a certain mindset, and it's, a, it's one that is humble, and he says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That this great, big, powerful God would make himself susceptible to sinful man. That he would be killed and die on the cross for you and me. That takes humility, but it showed the depth of his connection and his love for us to be able to do that. I mean, how far are we willing to go? Are we willing to, to humble ourselves in order to reach people? I think of the story that I remember hearing several years ago when I was a boy. And it was of a church where uh, it was a very traditional church. And all of the, the, uh, the people were, the ladies were in beautiful, great dresses. The men were in suits. And uh, it was the, during the 1960s. So you had the, the kind of the, the hippie movement was going on at that time here in the United States. And during a church service, this girl walks in with all of the flowers in her hair and barefoot and a skirt. And she just walks up right in the middle of the church and sits right down in front of the aisle, right in front of the pastor. And the whole congregation like, <gasps> Okay, that's different. And then, come trodden up, comes this older man with a cane, wearing a suit. And everybody's waiting with bated breath. What is that old man going to say in front of the entire church? He's going to tell her to get up, tell her to get out. Quit quit being so disrespectful. And that's what people are anticipating. They're waiting to see. What's he going to say? What's he going to do? And and as he makes his way right to the front, he sees where she is. He puts his cane on the pew, and then he kneels down right by her. He was willing to humble himself because he knew she didn't know who Jesus was and he was willing to sit there and help her understand who Jesus was. That took humility. It takes humility. If we're going to make that connection, it's going to take humility. But that's not all it's going to take. It's going to take hard work. Hard work. That Jesus would, would, to learn a language, to know customs, to know ceremonies, to come and identify with us, and to say, come to me, all you are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'm going to take your yoke upon you. It's going to be work. It's going to be tough, but I'm going to do it because I love you. I'm going to choose to identify with you. I'm going to walk a mile in your shoes. Now, I, I, I don't know how many of you have seen this. We showed this film just a few weeks ago here, but the movie uh, McFarland, USA. Anyone seen that movie? It's a Disney film. It's really a good movie. It's about a cross-country cro- coach in McFarland, California, uh, who's working at a high school that is predominantly Spanish, and many of the children that go there are uh, sons and daughters of the migrant workers that are there, These what they call the pickers. And so these, these kids have to get up every morning at like 4.30 in the morning and go to work and work within the fields, and then they have to go to school and do all their stuff, and then uh, they participate in cross-country and possibly have to go back to work later. I mean, it's a very tough life. And uh, as this coach is trying to get this, this cross-country team going, three of his main athletes are just not there one day. And they said, well, why? They said, well, they need to be in the field. So he, he shows up at their home, and this is a completely different culture for him. And he walks in and he sits down and he's eating all these enchiladas. And I, he, he, he keeps eating them. And every time he eats them, he doesn't tell her no because he thinks that's rude to say no. And she keeps putting another one down. I think he consumes eight or nine. And uh, the, one of the kids looks at him and goes, you know, you can tell her no. He goes, it's rude to say no. He goes, it's also rude to throw up at the table. <laughs> but he's, he's sitting there trying to identify with this people that he's eating their food. And then he decides to go to work with them. The next day, he goes out in the field. He gets on the truck. He goes with these kids. And he goes out in the field to experience what they experience. Because he's showing how much he cares to be with them and how much he wants them to be a part of what he's doing. See, that's what God did. It's a picture of Jesus. The God came among us, he ate our food, he sat at our table. He didn't say it was gross, he didn't complain. He put on our dress, he learned our language. That he made himself susceptible to things like the common cold. That he identified with us. He identified with you. So you can't say that you don't understand God. No, he understands you. He understands everything about you. And he's telling us if we're to discover disciples, we need to seek to understand where people are coming from. How to love them. Come into their world. Eat of them. Eat of their culture. Be a part of their food, their family, their festivities. Jesus is going to weddings. He's going to funerals. Are you finding that connection? Or do you expect people to come to you? You must conform to us. That's not what the Bible says. I mean, yes, we're to conform to the truth of who God is. That's true. But we're to go to the extra mile, becoming all things to all men, by all means that we might save some, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We must make every effort to do so. It is hard work to do so. It reminds me of Hudson Taylor. I don't know if you know much about Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary to China from 1832 to 1905. He's actually known by many different um, people in the field that he is one of the four or five greatest missionaries in history. Uh, this man was an amazing, amazing man. And he talks about going to, uh, I mean, he, start, he was there, ended up being there for 51 years. His love for the Chinese was, was infectious. He was responsible for bringing over 800 missionaries to the country who began 125 schools and directly resulted in 18,000 Christian conversions, as well as the establishment of over 300 stations of work with more than 500 local helpers and 18 provinces. He and his wife took in orphans, they ran orphanages, hospitals, Um, they saw sickness, they saw war. He ended up burying six of his children there. His two wives died before he did, and he saw the death of several missionaries from his mission. He'd been persecuted, he'd been through rebellion, and he he had gone through even uh, hostility from Americans because he did something that no other missionary, not too many missionaries had done up to that point, especially in China. He had showed up and preached and wasn't very well received, even though he had medical supplies and he had training to help them, but he wasn't received. So what he decided to do was change something. He got rid of the black robe because they kept calling him the black devil, you're never going to go well as a missionary if people call you the devil. Just FYI. And so he decides to reach out to the culture and change his dress. He puts on Chinese dress, and he takes on the Chinese hairstyle, where he shaves his head in the front, and he puts a pigtail. And then he's received by everyone in society just by changing his dress. dress. And he was speaking their language and identifying with them. See, it's amazing what we do. That's what God did, that he took on our dress. Our language, the great God learned to dress and a custom and traditions in the ancient Middle East and lived in that culture. And it's the truth of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22. It's in your pew Bible. I'll, I have already quoted it, and I'll read it to you. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. This is Paul talking. And I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And his tailor said this, this is what he did. He gave his life in the pursuant, pursuance of people coming to Christ in China, and he said this, If I had a thousand pounds, China should have it. If I had a thousand lives, China should have them all. No, not China, but Christ. Can we do too much for him? Can we do enough for such a precious Savior? I'll give everything so that other people might know who he is. Are we willing to do that? Do our hearts burn within us to make disciples? We're all fine with having our life all just okay. Let me have my safe family, safe TV, safe radio, safe standards in my car. But are we willing to burn and let our life burn out to make his name known to those who do not yet know him? Who are those who are living as enemies of the cross of Christ? Who are living in darkness? Are we willing to give our life for that? Is that our passion? To speak in cross cultural boundaries. To enter into conversation. To be awkward so they might know Jesus. I don't think we do. I think we're so good in our holy huddles, having our little Bible studies, and letting the world go to hell in a handbasket that our hearts don't burn passionately within us to make his name known, to know that people are going to hell. And they're having a great time, it seems, but God says within his word that they have no peace truly. That it's a, it's a superficial our joy. And many of them are actors and celebrities that are paid to make you think one way. But the depth of the reality shows that they are far from God. And these aren't just the celebrities. These are the, the, those that are our neighbors, that are our friends, that are our coworkers. That we're to love them in ways that they don't understand. Even when they're fighting against us. Even when they're gossiping about us. Even when they're tearing us down. We're to love them. That's what God's called us to do. So that they might know who Jesus is. Because that's what he did for us. That while we were still yet enemies of God, that he gave himself for us. It's not making it so, till they're friendly toward us. It's living your life in such a way that you love them and they see it. And that means telling them the truth. Because if you hate them, you're not going to tell them anything. That we have to love them. We have to care that much for them and do it just like Jesus did. See, we have a divine revelation, a necessary connection, but we also have... A most wonderful and loving invitation. It's an invitation. Look at verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, that invitation involved a recognition of someone's need. See, Jesus recognized our need. He recognizes what we need. It's pretty amazing. Do you know the Bible speaks to the whole, whole of our existence in what it is that we need? It's the fascinating about the scriptures that the word of God is completely applicable to every single people and culture, and that hits something that something that other cultures otherwise miss. Meaning that they might like in our culture we value innocence, and we hate guilt. I mean, those are the things that we look at. In other cultures, it's clean or dirty. It could be shame and removal of shame. We talk about shame-based cultures, so you learn about in school. Cultures that have a degree of shame, meaning that they don't want to suffer shame in front of the greater community. For example, uh, my, my uh, mentor worked with uh, Native Americans here in uh, the United States and Oklahoma. And he talked about, he, he told us, he said, they're a shame-based culture. He said, for example, when you play softball with them and they get two strikes, I mean, on you, they'll walk you four straight balls. Now, as Americans, we're like, huh, we don't do that. Strike them out. But for them, they want you to save face. That's their culture. But see, the Bible talks about that. It talks about shame. It talks about guilt. And it hits every avenue of every culture. I don't care if you're Puerto Rican, you're Cuban, you're from Congo, Zambia, Zamibia. I don't care if you're from Malaysia, Madagascar, Eritrea, Djibouti, Indonesia. I don't care. It hits every single culture without, without stipulation. Every single one, every native tribe, even the furthermost reaches of the Amazon or in Papua New Guinea, the Bible speaks to the reality of their condition, and God offers something to them that otherwise we miss in our own westernized white culture, although we're not white anymore. We're 31 flavors here, which is great, but we have to understand that. That's how far God was willing to go. He was willing to identify with. And that's why Bible, by the way, just as an aside, this is why Bible translation is so important. Because God wants to go into a a one-people group in one language and speak in their heart language. That's why we offer Bibles in different languages. Because God speaks and transforms from the inside out. And when you learn the words of a culture, you can transform them from the inside out. See, Islam does something a little bit different it forces everybody to learn Arabic in a, in a conformity to it because they see that as the heavenly language. And I remember I was debating an Islamic, uh, uh, I don't know if he was a scholar, but we were going back and forth, and he says, your Bible has been polluted because it's been translated so many times. We have the one, one word of God, the Quran." And I said to him, isn't it funny that your God can only speak in one language and mine can speak in any? Because he transforms from the inside out. That's the incarnation, by the way. That's what the incarnation is. And that's what we're showing here. He's saying, come to me. I'm giving you an invitation. I understand you. I've lived among you. I know your hurts. I know your pain. I know you've been a victim. I know you've hurt other people. I know you've been all through all these things. And I'm here to take it all. I'm here to take all of your sin, all of your shame, all of your suffering, all of your sickness upon myself. And I want to give you mine Instead, see the word for Greek word for labor is refers to working until being worn out, depleted physically, mentally, emotionally. And it's the idea of working one's way to God, there's people are tired of it. And the Greek word for heavy laden it refers to an overload, it's causing someone to be literally weighted down. The immediate context calls to those who were oppressed by the legalism of the Pharisees and the scribes. But the greater idea is rest for our souls, rest for those who seek forgiveness of their sins and to be freed from guilt, shame, alienation, and dread caused by our state before God. Are you weighted down? Are you burdened? Jesus offers to take it. He offers it to you because of the depth of his love for you. What sins are you holding on to that you need to lay down at his feet? What relationship are you keeping a hold of that God wants you to relinquish and give to Him? What is it that is causing you such great pain? What is giving you this anxiety? Jesus offers to meet your need, to quench your thirst, to fill you, to give you relief, and to give you rest. See, He doesn't just give you a hypothetical relief, but a real one. And He offers Himself a very real Savior. He is a very real savior, by the way. He's not a myth. When I was in graduate school, one of the most astonishing things that I encountered was the understanding of what's called resurrection myths in every culture, in different cultures. Every culture has some type of resurrection myth. Whether it's a god that dies and rises again, it happens. Osiris, you see that within uh, Egyptian mythology. You see it within uh, the Greek gods who were said to have died and rose again, such as Dionysius, Persephone, Asclepius, and even Achilles and Memnon, who are said to have died and rose again. There's the Norwegian god Odin, and then there's the Hindu god of Ganesha and Krishna. The Finnish god Lemminkainen, and, and, and every single culture has a resurrection myth. But the difference between all of them and Jesus' resurrection is this. Jesus occurred in history. Meaning that it is testified by secular historians, actual historical figures that you can look up in history books such as Pilate, Quirinius, Herod, Caesar. Certain periods of time you can see where they served and the fact that Jesus was not just seen by his close companions but by 500 witnesses at one time as 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that it occurred within history. And all of those resurrection myths of other cultures are embedded within it to point to the reality and the fulfillment of it in Jesus Christ and him alone. See, that's the beauty of us all. Is the depth to which God shows his love unto us. And through all of these, even secular historians, unbelievers testifying that Jesus lived, did miracles, died, and even reported him rising from the dead. Names such as Tacitus, Suetonius, Thallus, Pliny the Younger, Celsus, Lucian of Samosata, Mara Bar Serapion, and Jewish historian Josephus all testify about Jesus, his life, his miracles the supernatural events around his life and his resurrection. He was a real man who lived and breathed, the God-man, who ate, I'm sure he laughed, served, loved, healed, and taught the truths of God. He went to weddings and funerals. He was with us. Christianity, it's often been said that not, Christianity is not so much a religion, but a relationship with Almighty God. Now, in order for us to accept this wonderful invitation that, of this relationship, of entering into it with him, it requires a personal decision. A personal decision. So you have to be the one who receives him. It can't be your grandparents' faith, your parents' faith. It can't be your spouse's faith. It has to be your own faith. I remember when I was in India and I was interviewing this, interviewing this uh, young couple and I was talking to the wife who was a young mother. And I, I said to her, I was like, well, how did you come to know the Lord? You converted from Hinduism to become a Christian. And she said, my father converted, so I converted. There wasn't an understanding of the depth of relationship for herself. Now, I... I, I, Part of it was we were limited by language, but I think the truth was really there, and I think people think that. Just because that individual did, I do as well, and now I'm a Christian. But the idea is is that we are individually to give our burdens to him. We are to give our life to him, and it's a personal decision each one of us have to make. And Jesus stands before you and says to you, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Not just in your personal testimony, but the depth of your life. Who do you say I am? Now, it's a decision that is to be made without hesitation, without hesitation. You're not to wait. You're not to prolong it. We're not to put it off, hold on to our sin, and then hope to repent later. And when we offer that, we need to make sure that we are, we are, we are letting people be through in process, but we're also to press the truth upon them. There's a story known as the Faust legend. Legend. And it's of a man who makes a deal with the devil to get fame, fortune, and pleasure. And he hopes to enjoy all of the pleasures of earth. And then right before he dies, he plans to repent so he gets out of it all. The reality is that the devil grabs him right before he can, grabs him and puts his hand over his mouth before he can repent and, and confess. And he's dragged off to hell. See, many people, I think, live that way. They think they can just live like the devil, do whatever he wants, and then at the end of time, I'm going to be all right, and I'll repent, and God will be okay with me. Let me tell you, shall we consent you in sin that grace may abound? By no means. If you are sinning continually and intentionally, knowing that you will be forgiven, then you really don't understand the depth of the cross of Christ and what God has done for you. You see it as a magical incantation, not understanding that it is a real life inner transformation. So we come to him without hesitation, as Second Corinthians chapter six verse two says, For he says, In the favorable time I listen to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now's the time, don't delay. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. We're to follow Jesus without hesitation. And when we do follow him, we must make sure that we follow him wholly. W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely. Notice when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. When you're taking the yoke, the entire person is under that yoke. Not just a part of me. It's not just with my finger. It's the entire being is held to hold that yoke. The yoke is a, is a metal piece that was held out and used to keep animals, especially within farming, and usually two animals together. And Jesus is saying, come alongside me. My burden's light. It's not heavy. But you're to follow me completely. Entirely with all of who you are, he offers this yoke to us, and and it leads to and really what he's offering us is a phenomenal satisfaction. Have you ever been so exhausted that you can't think? When the only thing that you want to think about is your bed, you ever had that? So tired, you just want to crawl in your bed, feel the covers around you, and be like a little baby. You're so tired, you just want the day to go away. Have you ever had such a bad day that you want to go to sleep just so you have a different day when you wake up and you don't have to go through that day again? See, what Jesus is saying here is, I'm going to take you, I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to give you renewal. I'm going to satisfy the longings of your soul. So he offers us rest. The idea here for the word rest is completing a process. It properly means to give rest after the needed task is completed, to pause. After precious toil and care, he will give us a rest. And the word is in the future tense, the active voice, meaning he's the one who is going to do it to us, the way that the word is is written there, which means he alone will be the one who gives true rest. No one else, not any philosophy, no religion, no relationship, no power, no food, no drink, no drug, no money, no place or thing will give this kind of abiding and lasting rest. It comes from Jesus alone. And then he offers great renewal renewal. I don't know if you've ever carried something heavy and then someone to take that off of you and give you something light and fed, suddenly you feel like, wow, that's not that heavy. If you've had to carry and, and do something really heavy and then it's, they, they hand you something that's much lighter and you're like, wow, this is a lot easier. And you feel renewed. You feel energized. And that's what he's offering. He's not offering you just rest, but complete renewal to him. And that's what we are offering to others when we are speaking to them about who Jesus is Jesus can save the greatest sinner, and he invites us to partner with him in that endeavor. How? He wants us to be involved in people's lives. Now, here's a few pointers that I want to give to us as we discover disciples. First of all, I want us to recognize, and this isn't in your notes. You can just write this down. I want us to know, remember that God alone changes lives. That's what God does. It's his job. You can, you can tell them about who Jesus is, but you can't change their life. In other words, you can cast out the net, but only Jesus sends the harvest and sends the fish. You have to cast out the nets. Last week, we had some friends from my seminary days stop by and stay with us as they were on a fundraising trip. They're going to planning on becoming missionaries in Berlin, Germany. We brought them over to the church, and we showed them all God has done and going through, and and it was an honor to show all of what you guys have done and been a part of, uh, just show that off. And as we looked at the garden, my friend Nathan, he said to me, God's given me a word for you. Now, this is, I trust Nathan. I've been around him. Uh, Sometimes when people say that, I get nervous. But he comes up to me and he says, God's given me a word for you. I said, okay, what's your word? And he says, prepare the garden. And just as you prepared the garden, God did the work. He's the one that made the plants grow. You're to prepare the garden here at the church, meaning the people of God. You make the bed. God's going to bring the results. He goes, it was I. He was talking about God who grew it. Build the beds of the church, and I will grow it in amazing ways. And he's already doing that. Some of you even got to testify and see just that reality. I don't know if you have got to see the article yet, but our church was featured in the Beacon News, which is in the Tribune, just yesterday, talking about what God's doing through the garden. They called it a garden of hope. We didn't call it that. That's what they called it. As is we've seen giving hope to people from different nations, providing them with the tangible need to connect with them in the hope of sharing Jesus Christ with them. He's grown that garden, and it's beautiful. But he's grown the garden of our body, together with him. So we must make sure we understand that God is the one who alone changes lives. Secondly, if you want to be discovering disciples, ask God to give you opportunities, and God will give it. That's one request that I know that he will answer. Ask God for opportunities. Well, God doesn't grant me opportunities. Oh, no, he'll give you opportunities, probably more than you can handle. Ask God for opportunities, and he will give you, give it to you. Thirdly, abandon Christian isolation. Here's what I mean by that. We have a tendency to see how bad the world is and hear all the reports of how bad the world is. And so we go into a bunker mentality and separate ourselves in fear of being polluted or having our children polluted. We're to stick ourselves out there. Can't be isolated and be Christian monks. We have, we have to connect with people because they're lost. Fourthly, let's be spiritually active in our community. Look for spiritual avenues to connect to people. Find ways to connect with people. Help me to need We've met a need with the garden. That's one way we can meet a need. There's other ways we can meet a need. Many different people have, I mean, everybody has a need. We need to find creative ways to meet people's needs in the hope of sharing Jesus Christ with them. Lastly, be available at all times to share the gospel. What I mean by that is this. God has a way of bringing opportunities into our lives when we aren't ready. We feel like we need extra prep. May your walk with God be so close and consistent that you cultivate his presence as you go through your day and then you are ready to testify his goodness and grace at all times. These are just some ways that we can get engaged in our community and I pray that we might do so because God invites us to discover disciples of all nations, of all ages. Let's do so together.